What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Hey, is that you? Are you a non-Catholic and you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith? We can help you get the answers that you are looking for. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Japan, here is a special phone number just for you. The uh, country code for the United States, 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for the program. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, well, we're streaming on both platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will uh, then send that to us here in the studio, and we're off to the races. By the way, uh, if you're watching us on TV today, the best way to communicate with us is via the email, and that is ctc at EWTN.com. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from Bradley, uh, emailed to us. Bradley says, I am not Catholic because there is too much scandal in the church. Yeah, thanks, Bradley. I appreciate the comment. So I can relate in that I was very conscious of church scandals around the time I considered becoming Catholic. I, I became Catholic in 2003, and as you probably remember, 2002 was a pretty bad year for the Catholic Church yes. in terms of headlines. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I will say that it deterred me for not even a nanosecond in my decision to become Catholic. And I, I have maybe a little bit of an advantage in that I, I studied Christian history. That was my path into the Catholic Church. And so I was deeply familiar with the history of scandal that has stretched from modernity all the way back to the Company of the Apostles. And, you know, honestly, if you kind of look at the Twelve Apostles and assess the uh, integrity of the Catholic Church <laughs> based on its original pillars chosen by Jesus, you would have to conclude, well, I, I can't affiliate, right? Because one of them, of course, betrayed the Son of God to death. That was a pretty scandalous activity. Um, uh, the, uh, the head of the Church that Christ appointed denied him three times, and then, you know, to add insult to injury, um, sort of turned his back on the Gentiles once mm. he showed up in Antioch and yeah. created scandal there. So that that wasn't that wasn't very promising. Um, James and John, the blowhards, uh, <laughs> that you know the sons of thunder uh, that uh, you know wanted to have their way with people and call down fire and brimstone on them. Jesus didn't think much of them. Yeah. Um, then there was doubting Thomas, who uh, who just flat out refused to believe in the resurrection, uh, though Christ had predicted it. So and that's that's. That's five out of the twelve that we know of. A bit of a motley crew. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's just that's just the ones we know about, right? And uh, and then you know we don't the, the rest of their personal history is a little bit more obscure, and so I'm, I'm sure that wasn't the end of uh, of problems. Mm. Would you have stayed away from the company of the apostles because of scandal? Um, and uh, uh, so I'm not justifying scandal. I'm not praising it. It's terrible. What motivated me to become Catholic? Um, was that uh, you know I didn't particularly want to go to mass with 
the the priests that were responsible for the scandals in 2002. I didn't want to hear them say Mass. I didn't want to go to confession to them. I didn't want to be buddies with them. I I, I wanted to be Catholic so I could hang out with St. Augustine, so I could hang out with St. Francis of Assisi. Yes. So I could hang out with the guys who were exemplars of Christian holiness, and we could be united in one faith and, and through the same sacraments knowing that for many of them, St. Francis in particular, they came to holiness in a scandal-ridden church by relying on the means of grace provided by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And my experience as a Catholic has been that I have been around some extraordinary Catholic individuals with fine moral character who have ministered to me and spoken into my life and accompanied me and my family. And if there's somebody that's a bit dodgy, well, I don't hang with them. There you go. Bradley, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Caleb. Uh, regarding... Except, of course, when the dodgy guy's me, and then I can't get away from myself. Well, there is yeah. that. Caleb says, divine simplicity confuses me. The church says God is absolutely simple, but wouldn't God be more simple if he was made up of less parts? That is, uh, persons. Isn't one person simpler than three? Yeah, thanks. So the doctrine of divine simplicity has to do with the divine nature, and the teaching is that God has no parts at all. God is indivisible. Mm. And and the reason for that teaching is that if God were composite, then there would be something in virtue of which uh, he was composite. You know, if you, you think about it, if you go take, uh, you know, three sticks and bind them together— um, you know, their their collection requires some kind of agency outside the thing that mm-hmm. that explains the composition, right? Um, and so, if there was something that explained God's composition, that thing, that thing that does the explaining, would be the ultimate thing. That'd be where the buck stops, metaphysically speaking. And so, you can't have God's by definition is where the buck stops metaphysically. So mm-hmm. He's got to be metaphysically simple. Um, when we talk about the persons of the Blessed Trinity, the teaching of the Catholic Church is emphatic that they're one substance. They share one common essence. And so when we're, when we're trying to get at the, the stuff, as it were, of God, you're still talking about a one thing, mm-hmm. a oneness. Not even a thing, but a oneness. Okay. So the, the, whatever else we say about the Trinity, it doesn't take anything away from God's unicity. Very good. And this one from uh, Tyson watching on YouTube. Uh, why does Dr. Anders believe that the apostles would have had the deuterocanonical books? Uh, well, let's start with the fact that they quote them. <laughs> right, so if you, if you look at the New Testament, uh, the, the vast majority, you know, 90-plus percent of the citations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are from the Septuagint translation of the Bible. It includes the deuterocanon. And then, then there are specific passages of the Deuterocanon that are cited in the New Testament. And, you know, it'd be kind of pedantic for me to list them all, but uh, you, can, you can go Google search that, and you'll mm-hmm. find tons of them. But, uh, um, you know, to take a few examples, I mean, in the Book of Romans, uh, Paul seems to directly cite the Book of Wisdom, you know, by way of, uh, of illustration. There are others, mm-hmm. you can find many of them. Very good. And uh, Tyson, thank uh, thank you so much for watching us on YouTube. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones. Uh, Actually, quite a bit of activity already. James in San Antonio, Paula in Washington, Ellen in Ohio, Peggy in Florida, but hark, there are two lines available for you right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called A Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with uh, James in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio Network. Hey there, James. What's on your mind today, sir? I have a question for Dr. Anders. It was brought up to me by a Protestant friend that I have, and I think there's some truth to it, but I couldn't really answer it completely. It has to do with this idea that priestly celibacy in our Catholic Church is all because, like back in the Middle Ages or something, the priests were accumulating uh, wealth, or there was church property involved more commonly, and the married priests, because there were married priests back then, he said, were passing it on to their children, and the Pope couldn't have this, so they decreed uh, priestly celibacy to eliminate the priests having offspring and heirs. And it seems to me I've heard about that before. I know there's maybe some historical truth to it, but I'm sure that's not the whole answer, because I know there are good spiritual reasons. So how much of that is true? Yeah, none of it. None of it. None of that's true. Now, it is true that priests have offspring, and that that's true today. Yeah. Right? You, just because you mandate celibacy doesn't mean that everybody will comply. And so priests have been bearing illegitimate issue for as long as there's been a Catholic Church. Not the majority of them, thankfully. Uh, most are faithful, but but there's always a significant minority of people who are going to, you know, color outside the lines and do things they shouldn't do. And, and in fact, some of the more corrupt popes were um, uh, rather famous for appointing their quote-unquote nieces and nephews to uh, positions of importance within the papal hierarchy. Oh, my. Right? You know, oh there's a, a, we have lots of nieces and nephews of the, <laughs> of the popes getting positions, and they weren't actually nieces and nephews. You know? Got so it. Just, just being celibate, well, being unmarried, I should say, didn't, uh, didn't prevent that problem. Um, now, the, the valuing of celibacy as an ideal state for the clergy is something, of course, goes back to sacred scripture. And Jesus himself talks about it when he speaks in Matthew 19 about those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he speaks of them with approval. He's probably referring to the Essene community at Qumran, uh, you know, the Jewish apocalyptic sect that live out, lived out in the desert from which John the Baptist probably came. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they advocated and practiced celibacy, and Jesus seems to acknowledge them with some favor. And, of course, Christ himself lived a celibate life. John the Baptist lived a celibate life. St. Paul lived a celibate life, and he says that it's better for people in ministry to be as he is, namely unmarried, uh, and, but uh, but he grants the concession that if they can't do that, then it's okay for them to marry. So there's a preference for celibacy built into the New Testament and the example of our Lord. And, and so that, you know, the practice of celibacy as a spiritual discipline goes back to the very beginning and has absolutely nothing to do with the acquisition of property. And of course, this was lived uh, quite um, ascetically uh, by the Desert Fathers, who not only practiced celibacy, but a radical form of poverty and obedience, and the origins of religious life and the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience have mm. characterized monastic life and religious life and hermetical life since the very beginning of the Church, uh, and have been deeply valued as states that are more tending to the perfection of Christian life if you have that particular vocation. Um, the uh, The thing that led to more explicit legislation about 
um, uh, about clerical celibacy was, in fact, the scandal of priestly concubinage, right? So it wasn't priests marrying. It was priests having girlfriends and bringing scandal to the Christian faithful. And so um, uh, uh, Pope Hildebrandt, Gregory VII, uh, really pushed to clean up the moral life of the clergy and to make sure that they live the celibate state and so forth, mm-hmm. because he wanted them to be a good moral example to the Christian faithful, not because they were acquiring property. And today, you know, I mean, I know an awful lot of priests. There are some priests today that have personal property. They typically don't acquire it in, as a result of their priesthood. I mean, there are priests who have wealthy families and they've inherited money from their mm-hmm. families. Uh, they're not they're not earning it on their priest salary, and I know diocesan priests um, who don't have wealthy families um, who you know get to retirement age and basically have zero in the bank account, mm-hmm. you know, and they've they've lived in a rectory and live sparsely, and they've given a lot of their money to the poor when they do have some, and they end up and uh, you know kind of worried about what father's going to do when he hits retirement age. You know, yeah. that's a common problem in in diocese. So. Priests, uh, diocesan priests, are not required to take a vow of poverty. They are they are supposed to live simply and not live, you know, uh, extravagant lives. Sure. Um, and many of them live, um, you know, close to penury. James, we hope that's helpful for you and for your friend there. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Looks like one line open, 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Let's go now to Paula in Washington State, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Paula. What's on your mind today? Hi. I have a question. I'm not sure if I can... describe it exactly the way I'm thinking right now, but I was raised Episcopalian. My mother was raised Catholic. My father was a Protestant. So somewhere back in time when they were married, uh, before children, they must have made some decision about where are we going to go to church. I'm assuming that, and there must have been some kind of uh, stigma of the Catholics versus the Protestants, I don't understand it all. And I've thought about it through the years. My parents have both passed on many years ago. I mean, Mom, Dad, she married, Mom married Dad, a Protestant. But we were raised in the Episcopal Church. And our Episcopal Church in Portland, Oregon, was all the same, exactly the same as the Catholic practices. We had communion, we had confession on Saturday, um, I'm just wondering, what is the difference, and why is there a difference? What's the difference? Why are there Episcopalians that practice like Catholics? I don't understand. Yeah, thanks. Uh, To know the history of of Episcopalianism is helpful here. So the Episcopal Church, uh, the tradition from which it comes, which is Anglicanism, came into existence in the 16th century because the King Henry VIII uh, wanted to have his marriage annulled. He wanted to divorce his wife and take another wife, and the Pope told him that he could not do that, that he was, you know, marriage was indissoluble, and he was bound to his to his spouse until death do them part, and uh, he really didn't like that outcome, and so he said, well, I'm, I'm going to remove myself from the Catholic faith, and because he was the king and, and really approaching an absolute monarch, he, he compelled the clergy in his uh, region to go with him, and so he basically took the appearance and structure of Catholicism, 
but broke it away from obedience to the Pope, and he created his own organization. With Instead of the Pope being at the top, it was Henry VIII that was at the top, and, uh, and that was the origins of the Anglican Church. Now, interestingly, when Henry d- did that, except for the papacy, in theology, there was an awful lot of similarity between what Henry's church was teaching and doing and what the Catholics that they had just broken off of were teaching and doing. <clears throat> now, that changed during <clears throat> the life of Henry's son, Edward. During King Edward's reign, the the church in England adopted much more of the principles of the Protestant Reformation, especially Calvinism, and uh, it adopted ultimately adopted a doctrinal statement, a statement of what Anglicans believe, called the 39 Articles. And the 39 Articles are Calvinistic. They are not a Catholic statement of belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and they changed the right of ordination. This is very significant. Uh, ordination is the, is the right, the sacrament, whereby a man is elevated to the priesthood and is authorized to celebrate the sacraments. They changed the rite of ordination and the theology of ordination and the theology of the Mass, their understanding of what was happening when the priest celebrated the Mass, you know, the, 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 the uh, celebration of the body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing that, they, they really severed forever the connection between the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church, not only in their theology, but also in Catholic theology, priests and bishops have their authority because of their succession to the apostles through ordination. So, you know, there's a bishop who ordains a successor, who ordains a successor, who ordains a successor down to the present day. And if you break that 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 continuity, then you, you've, you've essentially broken your connection to the sacramental system mm-hmm. of the Catholic Church. The Catholic position is that happened when they changed the rite of ordination in Anglicanism. So the Anglicans, from our point of view, cut themselves off from that from that living stream of sacramental grace in the sacrament of ordination. So Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church doesn't regard uh, Episcopal bishops and priests as validly ordained a bishop, a, a bishops and priests. Now, obviously, the Episcopalians don't take kindly to that, and they say, well, <laughs> yes, we are, and we have our arguments. Um, but that's, a, from the Catholic point of view, that's a, that's a major, major hurdle to say, you know, reunion between Episcopalians and Catholics. So the, the two big differences are while the, while the appearances, the outward structure, the architecture, you know, the way the liturgy is celebrated look similar, there are some serious differences in theology uh, as well as um, the, uh, uh, the understanding of the way uh, ecclesial authority and, and power is handed down through the generations. Uh, now, in the modern Episcopal Church, the modern Episcopal Church has moved a good deal further away from Catholicism um, than even the 39 Articles, because most most modern Episcopal churches take a stance towards, uh, we might call them sort of hot-button moral issues of the day, uh, particularly issues related to human sexuality. Uh, they've taken that in directions that are quite incompatible with Catholicism. Is that helpful for you, Paula? It is. I did not know that. And and another really quick, quick question is that where we live, there are two Episcopal churches. And where I grew up in Portland, Oregon, um, the Episcopal church we went to, uh, it always had a full congregation. When my mother and father passed away and we had the funeral at the church in Portland, I was so surprised, um, not just because of the number of people that attended the funeral, but it just looked like 
the Episcopal Church is declining as far as membership. Is that something that's really happening? I noticed that here. You are not imagining that. The demographics of Episcopalianism in the United States are such that if the rate of decline continues, there will be no Episcopalians in the United States in just a few decades. Wow. Uh, it, is a, it is a rate of decline that is, uh, that's, uh, that's catastrophic. The Episcopal Church knows this. I mean, they understand this about themselves, but they, they really are in a kind of death spiral of demographic decline. Paula, thank you so much for your call today from uh, the state of Washington. Let's go now to Ohio and talk with Ellen, uh, listening to us on the Great Annunciation Radio. Hey there, uh, Ellen, what's on your mind today? Hello, and thank you for taking my call. The question I've been asked um, is that if Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, future, then why is there a need to go to confession and get absolution from a priest? Sure, thank you. There are a couple things about this question that I need to answer. One of them is a is a understanding of the way the death of Christ works, right, in our lives. So the Catholic position is absolutely on the cross. Christ merited uh, redemption from sin, forgiveness of sin for the entire world, and that his death, the merit of his death, was sufficient to atone for all the sins that ever have been or ever will be committed. Right, that that much is true. But the way you've phrased the question makes it sound like that those graces get automatically applied, right? So just in virtue of the death of Christ, the merit and grace of Christ's death is automatically applied to me and and gives me a kind of free pass with respect to everything past, present, and future. Now, that's not how it works, right? The way it works is, it's one thing to talk about what Jesus did on the cross. It's another thing to say, how do I appropriate that? How is that grace applied to me as a human being? And one thing that does not happen, and this is emphatic from sacred scripture, is it does not give me a go-out-and-sin-free card, <laughs> right? That, that, that part of the condition for appropriating Jesus' grace into my life is a determination to amend my life. So take, for example, Second Peter chapter 2 is very clear that a person who enters into the Christian way of life but then turns back to a life of sin— Peter says, better that that person never have begun at all. Like, they've—you're really going to shipwreck your faith. St. Paul says that uh, if you have the gift of the Spirit, but then you turn around and live contrary to the Spirit, fornication, adultery, factions, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, that kind of thing, he says, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so the the conditions for appropriating the grace of Christ that he won on the cross are, first of all, faith and repentance— Right and and amending your life. If you make that determination, you ask God for grace. He will give you the grace to do that. But then, if you stumble and fall, we well, have to come back to repentance again. Now, you you still could say, well, okay, Anders, I'm with you so far. But but why do you have to do that in the context of the confessional with a priest? And the answer is, well, in an absolute sense, you don't. Meaning that, of course, a person can turn to God and say, please forgive my sins, and God can forgive that person without the intermediary of a priest. But like all of the sacraments, confession has this wonderful benefit to the soul that that uses it. It's a visible, audible, tangible sign that grace has been extended to you. So when you go to confession, because of its tangibility, you you have a word of promise 
from someone authorized to speak for God who says, I forgive you. Yeah. That's very different from sort of hurling your prayer out into the ether and saying, <laughs> well, you know, I suppose God probably forgives me. In this instance, it's as if God were to directly answer you and say, it's okay, Dave, I've got this. You're forgiven. And you so know there's it. A, there's, a, there's an encouragement in the life of faith that comes from the sacrament of the confession. There's more to it than that, but I've run out of time. Here comes the music. That'll Ellen, do for now. Ellen, thank you so much for your call. We'll also talk in a few moments here with uh, Peggy in Florida, Greg in Northwest Arkansas, Jerry in Long Island, on Long Island if you prefer. Line are open uh, for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Stay with us. Hey, glad you're with us for Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Still time for you to call, 833-288-3986. Or if you're watching us on TV today, shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, WGIC. That's at 94.9 FM in Clarksville, Tennessee, celebrating seven years with us this week. Congratulations to Deacon Dominic Azara and his great team there at Immaculate Conception Parish. From all your friends here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now for Peggy in Florida, listening on the Real Presence Radio online app. Peggy, what's on your mind today? Hi, a couple quick questions about the liturgy. First, um, how is it decided? at any particular parish, whether the creed cite, uh, said by the, the congregation will be the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. And secondly, following the creed, we have the prayer of the faithful, where the intentions are listed, and we all, uh, you know, say, Lord, hear our prayer. On what level is uh, that written? Uh, who decides what those petitions will be, except, of course, for the local ones for maybe, you know, uh, the repose of the soul of a parishioner who's passed or something mm-hmm. like that. But the more global, generic petitions, on what level are they decided and how standardized are they? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So uh, with respect to the choice of the creed, the discretion mm-hmm. is left to the celebrant. Uh, uh, the Roman Missal allows for either uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed to be used. The celebrant makes the determination um, traditionally, the Apostles' Creed has often been used in conjunction with masses for children because it's simpler to say mm. and it's devoid of some of the more cumbersome metaphysical vocabulary like consubstantial, um, but, uh, but it can be used in other contexts as well. But it's the celebrant who makes the decision. Okay. Um, when it comes to composing the prayers of the faithful, this is done at the parish mm. level. It's ultimately the discretion of the, of the pastor of the church. Mm. He can delegate that to his representative, of course, and there are specific guidelines about how they are to be written. You know, you 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 can't pl- just write a petition that, uh, you know, that, uh, that that Joe and his and his uh, and his pool at work wins the lottery. You know, <laughs> that, that, that there are there are some specific guidelines, but there's a lot of leeway of, uh, allowable within those guidelines. Peggy, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Just heard from Miguel on YouTube. A little praise report for you, David. Miguel says, "My day is not complete." without listening or watching Call to Communion. I love learning from each episode. That's Miguel in uh, St. Louis watching us on Covenant Network. Well, thanks, Miguel. Appreciate it. Very, very nice, yeah. Uh, here's Greg now, a first-time caller in Northwest Arkansas, checking us out on EWTN Podcasts. Hey, yeah, uh, there, Greg. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, Dr. Anders, I appreciate you taking my call. I was going to quiz you guys 
Dr. Anders, you always talk about that the Mass, when we attend the Mass, the, the number one purpose is to be there for the offer the sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord back to God. So, and that the homily is, and it, it's not as important. So, how are, how are we supposed to learn? How is the Catholic faithful supposed to learn what the Church teaches? You know, I was at a conference there one time, and the priest said, well, I've got eight minutes. Well, That's right. That's right. Heaven. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. So um, the homily can be an opportunity for catechetical instruction, to be sure, but there's just no way you're going to be able to get, um, you know, uh, everything that you need to say about the Catholic faith squeezed through the homily, which means that you're going to have to have extra liturgical forms of catechesis. I mean, that just that, that that's absolutely essential. Um you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, someone like the Dominican St. Vincent Ferrer would gather huge crowds, thousands of people, and he would preach at them for hours. Um, that, that sport has fallen out of favor, right, <laughs> you know, in, in, recent, in recent days. Um, but, the, but the institution of catechesis, in one form or another, has always been a part of the Church's life. Um, and uh, there's a significant body of research that shows that—, that Lifelong involvement in Christian formation, adult formation, continuing formation, is highly correlated to persevering in the faith, right? And so um, the pastor of the, of the parish has the responsibility of making sure that the educational needs of his parish are met. Most parishes, if they have resources, are going to have a kind of you know director of religious education and programs in education for children and adults. Uh, and they should be ro- robust, and they mm-hmm. should be responsive to the peculiar situation of that particular parish and its sort of social and demographic situations. Um, they should be uh, they should be dis- d- uh, differentiated according to age. Pro- one program for the elderly, maybe something for uh, you know married couples and families, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and the, there's a there's a book called the Directory of Catechesis. That gives a pretty detailed instructions about how to structure uh, faith formation in the parish, and the kinds of things that are appropriate subjects for study and not. I mean, you, it's obviously, sacred scripture is appropriate for study. The liturgy is appropriate for study. The lives of the saints, uh, the you know, the theological patrimony, the social doctrine of the church, um, all of that, and and we need to be invested in it. You know, um, I mean, I as a Catholic layperson, I'm a little bit different because I'm kind of a professional in this. But even before I got into this business. I mean, I, I, I mean, I always got a book in my hand. You know, I'm always mm-hmm. trying to learn something about mm-hmm. the faith. And um, and if you're not a reader, I mean, we're lucky today. I think we have more catechetical resources available to us today than we've ever had in 2,000-year history of the Church. Well, Greg also uh, pitched us a nice juicy softball here, which I've got to take a swing at, and mm-hmm. that is trustworthy sources like EWTN, radio, television, the National Catholic Register, uh, the wonderful uh, website, catholic.com. There are great ways that you can learn, uh, you know, without breaking a sweat, without without cracking a book, and learn and learn things well. You know, a friend of mine told me recently, he was uh, asking a pastor, and I'm not going to name the diocese or the pastor <laughs> to save embarrassment, about a particular theological issue. And this pastor said, huh, I don't know the answer to that one. Why don't you call Catholic Radio? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Greg, thanks so much for your call today. Glad that you're uh, listening to us there in northwest uh, Arkansas. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, last chance for you to call in at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. Or if you're watching us on TV, uh, do send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Jerry is on Long Island listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jerry, what's on your mind today? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Andrews, thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you do for the church. You're uh, so much needed. I have a particular question that I'm trying to discern about, you know, materialistic things. Um where to what level is it too much you know when when do you realize that um just because you can afford something um you know you you go ahead and you buy nicer things i mean to be particular i'm trying to discern to buy this nicer car that i'm i'm driving and i just have this sense of vanities and desires of prestigiousness and something is calling me to not get it because of, you know, of the desires of materialistic things. And sure. Sure. I, yeah. I, I really, I understand. I deeply appreciate the question and I thank you for asking these questions of yourself. Well, you know, I, I can't tell you, Jerry, because I don't know your situation, what is a prudent car for you to buy? I don't know what your family's needs are. I don't know what your financial situation is. So I can't answer that kind of question for you. I will tell you as a general principle, as long as you make a purchase that, that meets the needs and safety concerns and, and, and budget and you know perhaps you know whatever environmental criteria, whatever criteria you have for auto buying, mm-hmm. you know, if you buy a car that, that meets all those needs uh, but lacks some bell and whistle, the only purpose of which is to be conspicuous in your consumption, you know, to let the neighbors know that you can afford it. If you don't buy that other car, the one that's you're really only intending for purposes of conspicuous consumption, you're not going to do yourself any harm by not buying that car. I'm not about to tell you that it's always wrong to buy the nicer car. I didn't say that. But, you know, to orient our lives towards simplicity and our basic needs, and the Scripture's pretty clear. If we have a roof over our head and food on the table, and, you know, these days you might add health insurance and education for my children, and, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you've paid the mortgage, that's a fair chunk of money right there. But if you have those sorts of things, like, you've got what you need to, to live a happy and fruitful life. And ultimately, more than that is not really going to contribute that much to your to your happiness, and certainly not to your children's moral formation and well-being and that sort of thing. And it gives you opportunity to do more for the poor. Um, which, of course, is a mandate that's necessary in Christian life. Now, um, is it always a sin to buy the luxury item? No, it's not. It's not, right? And, and, and you can go out and get nice things. Um, but if that's the focus of your life, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you feel like, I need this to be happy, then, then it's time to do some soul-searching and decide, you know, do I need to readjust my priorities and my values? Appreciate your call, Jerry. Hope that's helpful for you. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let me tell you about something wonderful available from EWTN's religious catalog. It's a book called Mother Angelica's Lessons 
on Genesis. In this book, Mother unpacks biblical lessons from a perspective in ways you can understand and relate to in your life. Drawn from Mother's very popular biblical spirituality series from some years ago, she uses her personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections to see how the stories you read in Scripture are still occurring today, only with an ever-new cast of characters. You'll discover how deeply God cherishes you and how close he is to you, especially in difficult times. And of course, you'll discover how to read the Bible with the faith of a child so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that what we all want? Check out this wonderful book, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, back to the phones right now. Let's go to Linda, a first-time caller in Detroit, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130 today. Hello, Linda. What's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for answering my call. I have a question between the Catholic and the Orthodox Church. I've heard many Orthodox claim, just like the Catholics, that they are the one true apostolic church. Um, I also know that the Orthodox claims to have more books than what the Catholic Church holds on to. I just want to know what's the differences. I understand we used to be one church at one time, and we broke apart because of the papal issue. Um, well, how do we... What is the concern? What is the main difference? And who is true and what, per se? Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So, so one problem that uh, uh, that you run into in trying to assess the Orthodox claim that they are the one true Church is that there are divergent Orthodox groups claiming to be the one for, through ch- true Church, and they contradict one another. Oops. Right? <laughs> so the, the larger family of, of, uh, of Eastern churches that have roots in the apostolic era and genuine apostolic succession and sacraments uh, include really three major divisions, and, uh, and they correspond to specific councils and whether a particular Orthodox group accepted that council or not. So um, you can sort of think about a more or less unified front until— um, until you get to the uh, the Council of Ephesus, and at the Council of Ephesus, there was a group that rejected the Council of Ephesus, and they broke away, and they called themselves the Assyrian Church of the East. They think that they're the real McCoy, the authentic thing, and they think the people that accepted the Council of Ephesus are wrong. Then there are those that accepted the Council of Ephesus, and there they went trucking along for about another hundred years, and you had the Council of Chalcedon. And then you had a group of Orthodox that accepted the Council of Chalcedon, and then a group that rejected the Council of Chalcedon, and every one of them appealed to antiquity and to tradition and all the rest of it to say, well, we're the ones that have got it right. And, and if you ask an Orthodox person, how do you know what the Orthodox Church is, they're always going to answer in terms of their adherence to the ecumenical councils. Problem is, they can't agree on which councils are ecumenical, mm-hmm. right? And to my way of looking at it, that's a that's a kind of fatal flaw in Orthodox ecclesiology, right? Because it's you know the councils are the genuine ones because the church accepts them, but you know which church is right because they're the ones that accept the councils. So it's kind of <laughs> circular, right? Yeah. It's similar to the Protestant problem of saying, you know, we hold to the Bible alone, and you go, okay, which which version of the Bible, which list of canonical books do you count as sacred scripture? Because there are divergent lists. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and you know you can't you can't get the thing off the ground. You can't point to the Bible to establish your church's identity 
without having an antecedent conception of what the Bible is, but you can only get that with reference to the church's authority that establishes it. So again, it's kind of kind of a vicious circle in yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, you, since we're, you, you asked about differences in the canon, yeah, there, there are differences in the Eastern Orthodox canon of Scripture from, um, uh, from the Catholic canon. There's a, there's a couple extra books in the Orthodox canon that Catholics lack. Uh, but uh, again, even the Orthodox don't agree with themselves on this. So within Orthodoxy, say the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has a larger canon than other Orthodox churches that have a larger canon than the Catholic Church, which has a larger canon than the Protestant Church. <laughs> and, and there's really no way out of that dilemma until you have some kind of ex- some authority external to the canon, external to the councils even, uh, established by Christ with the divine authority that can say, here are the list of canonical books, here are the list of canonical councils. And as Catholics, we have that. It's called the Office of the Papacy, which was established by Christ. This is in sacred scripture. He named St. Peter and said, you're the rock foundation of the church's unity, and I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bound on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And, and, and therefore, through our union with the Pope, Catholics have a, a rational, objective way of determining what are the true councils, uh, what are the, what's the real canon of the Bible, mm-hmm. and other things of that sort. Linda, is that helpful for you? I think so. Thank you. You are most welcome. Thanks for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Baton Rouge now and talk with Jeff listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hey there, Jeff. What's on your mind today, sir? Boy, probably too much. I'm going to try and condense, and I appreciate you both having me on the air. First time caller. So I was uh, traveling through Texas not too long ago, listening to all sorts of Christian radio, and uh, the anti-Catholic theme was prevalent in everything that they were talking about, and, and to the point where a lot of their rhetoric was that somehow the Catholic traditions are demonic in nature because of Babylon, and we never really cut off those ties, and somehow we integrated that into the early Church, and you know, from, from the Pope, from day one kind of thing, and that's going to be the downfall of, you know, our religion to some extent. I've heard that rhetoric before, but it was more pointed to the fact about tying it back to, unfortunately, the 666 in the in the Bible and, and all that nasty kind of fire and brimstone stuff. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I've heard this one before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the claim here is that the Catholic Church has been infiltrated either directly by demonic spirits or at least from demonic influences. And this, this one is an interesting claim. The claim is that these influences came as a result of the Catholic faith's, faith's syncretism, its incorporating of, of pagan and Babylonian elements into the Church's identity, which, you know, I guess uh, demons were allegedly clinging to those things like— uh, you know, like barnacles on a ship, and so they, they get in because the Catholic Church incorporates pagan elements. So um, uh, here, a lot of problems with that, all right? Uh, one is that every Protestant church I've ever been in, every non-Catholic church I've ever been in, incorporates uh, a, a pagan elements, right? And how, how do I know that? Well, are you speaking English in this church? Probably, if it's a, you know, church in North America. Mm-hmm. Um well, isn't English just absolutely saturated with, with Anglo-Saxon? Isn't that a pagan language? Um, what, you know, what day of the week do you celebrate your service on? Is it Odin's day? <laughs> Is it Thor's day? <laughs> Is it the day of the sun? I mean, our calendar. Uh, you know, 
what what month do you start your um, your accounting year at your parish? Is it on Janice's uh, holiday? <laughs> you know, I mean, Christianity is the religion of the incorporation of Gentiles, that is to say, pagans, into the covenant people of God that were the Hebrews. Of course, they're going to bring their cultural identity with them. The question is, what are you going to do with it when it shows up, right? Are you going to baptize it and Christianize it and render it something sanctifying and beautiful? Um, Or not, or not. There's no question that you're going to have pagans in your church if you're doing your job, which is to evangelize them, okay? How many Protestant churches use Corinthian columns and Greek architecture, Mm, right? Uh, I mean, you could go on and on and on with this sort of thing. Sure, sure. But the you know the Catholic position is I think for that matter, the New Testament incorporates pagan elements. I'll say that again: the New Te- the Old Testament incorporates pagan elements. the The evolution of the biblical canon is uh, is the the evolution of Hebrew religion in conversation with Greco Roman culture and society, including its philosophy. Mm. And uh, and so you know Saint Paul directly cites uh, Stoic philosophy. Uh, arguably, the Gospel of John incorporates Stoicism in the great prologue to John in John chapter 1. Pagan elements pervade the New Testament. Does that make the New Testament of no authority? On the contrary, the New Testament does what the Catholic Church does, which is to articulate the Gospel in a philosophical idiom that is intelligible to its intended audience. So if you're trying to reach Stoic philosophers, it's a really good idea to use Stoic terms. Sure. Right. Why, why not? It's, it's not. It's not a mark against Catholicism. It's a. It's a sign of its genius. And from a theological point of view, the Catholic position is that uh, Christ came in the fullness of time. That's what Saint Paul says in Book of Galatians. And that doesn't mean simply with respect to the evolution of Hebrew culture, but of of human history, that there was an evolution of the entire human race culturally that made. First century in the Holy Land, the ideal time for Jesus to show up. Uh, St. Irenaeus put it this way. He said that Christ became incarnate when uh, only when men had become habituated to the divine logos, the divine logos who becomes incarnate in Jesus, mm-hmm. but also is the rational principle that enlightens every man, including the religious evolution, say, of Greco-Roman society. So Christian ideas about human dignity and universal morality can only land in a culture that's already developed a kind of humanistic philosophical base in which ideas of justice and law and natural law are even intelligible, right? Yeah. Um, all that pres- presumes that Christianity is is the fulfillment of, not the uh, not the captive of pagan culture. Exactly. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for your call today. Here's Michael now in Louisville, listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Hey there, Michael. What's on your mind today, sir? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. yeah. Why couldn't we add uh, deliver us from evil contraception in the Father? Contraception has killed over over two billion zyotes in a, in a help a root of abortion and same sex marriage and homosexuality. And I've only heard contraception mentioned one time over fifty years in a Sunday homily. Well, talking about uh, changing the Lord's Prayer, I don't know about that. So, so I, 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 I kind of lost the thread of the question. Was the question to add specific petitions to the Lord's Prayer that would target 
specific social ills? Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Well, the problem with that is the Lord's Prayer came to us from Jesus in response to the question of the apostles, um, teach us how to pray. And so he gave us a succinct formula that really covers the totality of what the Christian needs to desire. Now, you can compose other prayers that are based on the model of the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. um, and that's actually St. Augustine of Hippo has a famous letter, the letter to Proba, where he says that every legitimate Christian prayer at some level takes its model from the Lord's Prayer. So if you wanted to write a prayer that, say, when you get to the idea of deliver us from evil, enumerates specific evils that you want to be delivered from, yeah, that would be that would be acceptable. But you know you don't want to change the Lord's Prayer because that one has divine sanction. That one came straight from Jesus. Yes indeed. Michael, thanks you thank you for your call today. We're gonna try to get to quickly Eileen in Southern California watching on YouTube today. Eileen, we've got about a minute. What's on your mind today? Hi, um I go to the Latin Mass and I love the Latin Mass in recent years just started going. And recently somebody, a few people, have been talking to me about not going to the regular Mass because it's not valid. And I love the regular Mass, too, and I go every day. But I don't have the information to tell them when they quote things and tell me to read things. And I don't want to read the things because I I want to continue to go to the regular Mass. Okay, I can help you. So here's all that you need to know. The definition of a Catholic is someone that believes the Catholic faith and is in obedience to the Pope and the bishops. That's what a Catholic is. We have a word for people who reject the authority of the Pope and the bishops. We call them Protestants, not Catholics. Yeah. Uh, years ago, in the 4th century, St. Augustine confronted a group of people that said, hey, we're the Catholic Church, and only us are the Catholic Church, and all these other people aren't the Catholic Church. And just Augustine said, you're not the Catholic Church, you're schismatics, because the Catholic Church is universal. And the verdict of the whole world is conclusive. What all the bishops and the popes agree on together is the, is the Catholic faith. So uh, it is enough for you to know that the Novus Ordo, the new rite of the Mass, was promulgated by the Pope and all the bishops of the world. And someone who rejects that rejects the unity of the Catholic faith and the authority of the Pope and the bishops and has put themselves, at least dispositionally, outside of the Catholic faith. They have also shown themselves to be incurable ideologues who believe that the essence of the Christian faith is sort of a pedantic expertise over arcane texts rather than faith, hope, and charity, which are the theological virtues that unite us to God. Eileen, delighted we could get your call in today. And Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program five days a week, Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com, click on radio, and you're good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for joining us. See you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.